The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we're in our series uh, entitled, uh, In Spite of Us, the Story of God and His People in 1 Samuel. And the, the entire passage that we're covering today is a pretty sizable passage. It's actually all of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. It's a, it's a pretty big chunk, and it's a, not only a big chunk in, in terms of size, but it's a pretty momentous passage in the history of Israel. It, it's here that we're going to see the answer to the people's uh, requests slash demand they made back in chapter 8 that we covered two weeks ago. And that's where they came to Samuel and they said, hey, uh, you know, your sons are not that great and we would like a king to rule over us like all the other nations around us. And uh, Samuel was bothered by that and uh, he went to God and God said, hey, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting me as being king over them, but I'm going to answer this request of theirs, which made this a, just a side reminder, be careful what you pray for, because sometimes God will actually give it to you, so be careful what you search for and seek after with your life, because sometimes God will actually give it to you, but they wanted a king like every other nation, and here in chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that God gives them exactly what they did ask for. This is a, a story of how a young man named Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Uh, a young man named Saul becomes the first king of Israel, and it's a drastic change for him. We're going to see it's like a drastic change for him, and it's an incredibly drastic change for the nation of Israel as well. And in some ways, as we, we look at this passage, Saul is exactly the king that you would want to be the first king over your country. Uh, we're going to see in a second why that is, but he, he, is, he has almost all the things that you would want to be the ideal first king of Israel. And that's kind of the point. Is the people come to, to God and they ask him, they demand, they beg of him, give us a king like all these other nations, these mighty strong kings that rule these mighty strong nations. Give us a king like that. And God says, all right, I'll give you exactly what you asked for. Here's a mighty strong king like all these mighty strong nations that are around you. And let's see how that's going to work out for you. And the, we'll cheat ahead or maybe if you know a little bit, like it doesn't work out all that great in the end, but there are some good days until it turns out but we'll, we'll get to that in the future. But God, the, the really crazy, cool part of the story is that God takes this sinful request of the people, this selfish, rebellious demand of the people where he told Saul or told Samuel, they're not rejecting you as leader over them. They're rejecting me as leader over them. So that's a sinful request or demand and he takes that sinful request, then he takes this sinful, imperfect man, and he takes them both and redeems them, which is going to be some really good news for us today, because I don't know how many of you are, actually, I don't even know, we're all in the same boat, let's just own it this morning, let's be a big giant, not giant, but let's be a support group here in this school gym this morning, we are all, to some extent, and messes of our own making, aren't we? Uh, to, to all, and some, to some extent, we have made decisions, we've said things, we've done things 
that have resulted in us being in a mess of our own making. The ways that we think, the ways that we live, things that we have done, things that have been done to us, things that we have participated in. Some of them are things that have been seared into our conscience, that things that you've done and you, you, you can't escape from it. It's still in your head or certain results of bad decisions that you've made that you still live with results today. Maybe years have passed, months have passed. You still live the results of those bad decisions. Now, all of us, to some extent, live in a mess of our own making. And this is the good news in this passage this morning, is that God doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He calls us in our mess. And then he not only calls us in our mess to come out of our mess, but then he provides the way out. God can and does redeem us and our terrible choices. That's going to be the really good news that we're going to see this morning. What we're going to see this morning is this is the big idea that God's calling comes with God's transformation. And God's transformation comes with God's calling. God's calling. He calls us in our mess to come out of our mess. And then he provides the transformation that is needed to come out of that. And then it doesn't just stop there, but that transformation comes with a calling as well. We're going to follow the progress of Saul from being a spoiled rich kid to becoming a king. And we're going to see the, the effect that the God's calling has on him. And we're going to see the transformation that God provides Saul to fulfill the calling that he has on him. And hopefully along the way, we're all going to see ourselves in the story. All right? So, uh, because that means that because, we're going to see ourselves because when God calls you, when God calls you, you have to first of all, see clearly who you are. Secondly, be transformed into what you aren't. And thirdly, become what you are. That's going to make sense, hopefully, as we roll. First of all, you need to see clearly who you are. Secondly, be transformed into what you aren't. And thirdly, become what you are. First of all, we have to see clearly who we are. Uh, scholars find the approach that the author makes in chapters 9 and 10 uh, to be pretty interesting because uh, it is both positive and negative about Saul and it's both positive and negative about the people's demand to have a king and God's answer to that demand or that request. And that's interesting because usually when uh, those who are in charge write history, they write it with rose-colored glasses, right? So usually if you have a, a ruler who's in charge or a ruling party that's in charge, and they're going to write a story about the first king of their nation. Think about our early stories about George Washington, right? He, he never lied, and he chopped down the cherry tree, and he admitted to it, and he did all these amazing things. And even his actual like victories in battles were trumped up, and he seems like a like he's, he's a perfect he's the perfect dude. Like, but but that's not exactly who he was. Like, but that's the story is the myth that we put on early leaders to make it seem that our country is really awesome because our leader, our country was founded by these awesome leaders who didn't have weaknesses. But that's not what. The, the author, not the way he approaches this story, he owns that Saul is a 
in some ways a good guy, but also in some way, many ways an imperfect dude. And that these people demand for a king was sinful, and yet God's going to take this demand, this request for them, and he's going to redeem it. As, there is, as God writes history, there's brutal honesty, but yet there's also hope. And it's kind of that way all the way through scripture, isn't it? Like when we, when we were back in Luke and we were looking at the disciples, like we saw like those guys were, they never had it together. They were always tripping over their own feet or tripping themselves or tripping each other on purpose. And yet God, and, and then history is very honest about their frailties and their frailties and their faults. And yet God turns around and redeems them. This is the story of what he does over and over again. So chapter nine starts out by telling us about Saul. And we're gonna see these two sides. First of all, you see in verse one, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zior, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite. So that means he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a man of wealth. So what this tells us already in verse one is when it gives us Saul's uh, ancestry, it gives us four generations. And what that tells us, we don't see that in scripture unless that family is a family of note. So the fact that this is, a, this is a wealthy man, a wealthy family, and a man of a family of some reputation. Verse 2, and he, that's Kish, had a son whose name was Saul. Now it's going to describe Saul for us. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For from his, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul, let's get a picture of who he was. First of all, he tells us he was a young man and he was rich. And then it tells us that he was strong and not only strong, but he was an impressive man and incredibly handsome. <laughs> That's the, uh, see, he was the total package. He was a 10. Uh, when you looked over the whole nation of Israel, there was not a man who was more physically impressive than Saul. And he was rich. And he was, he was taller and bigger and stronger than everybody else. Whenever he walked into the room, you would not help but notice him. All the ladies are sort of like that, uh, that scene from Beauty and the Beast, which I've seen more times than I probably care to admit to you guys. That, that scene from Beauty and the Beast when Gaston's walking through town and he's looking at Belle, but all the other ladies are looking at Gaston. Like that's, that is Saul. And let's just be honest. And this, I don't want to read too much into the text, but you are not bigger and stronger and more handsome and, and, and incredibly wealthy and not have some sort of complex to you. Right? Like, like, eventually, you find out that, hey, I'm pretty good looking, I'm bigger and stronger, and I can buy anything. That, my daddy will buy me anything that I want. He'll buy me the nicest camel that's out there. You know? Leather seats and the whole deal. I mean, he was driving to school with, like, a lowrider camel that had lifts on it. Like, you, you know, like, like, he had it going. I had, like, neon underneath it. He's that kid from school. Like, if it was modern day, he would be the quarterback. Had all the ladies, had everything, and everybody, all the guys around him just secretly hate him. And all the ladies are like, ah. Oh. 
I had a friend who was a little bit like that in, in high school, and his story of what high school was like was very different from mine. He has stories where, where mothers were calling him to come over and look at their daughters trying on a bathing suit because they're trying to hook this awesome, good-looking, popular, uh, athletic kid up with their daughter. If you are this kind of person, the world is kind of tilted in your direction. And that's who Saul was. And so when the people prayed and said, God, we want a king like all the other kings, God says, I got just a man for you. He's the biggest, strongest, best looking guy in the kingdom, and he's wealthy. He's what everyone would tend to look for in a leader. He is seemingly, absolutely ideal. So we see this side of Saul. But yet we see this other side of Saul as well. We're gonna see that he was, even though he was rich and strong and impressive and incredibly handsome, yet he was spiritually dull. And I think we can draw the apt conclusions that he was also probably pretty prideful. Now, verse three, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men, that's a servant or a slave, and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashai, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Now when they came to the land of Zuph, these are awesome names, aren't they? Saul said to his servant who was with him, come. Let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he, the servant, said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor, so that all that he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Verse 8, the servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. This tells us a couple of things about Saul, this rich, strong, impressive, incredibly handsome dude. That First of all, it tells us that Saul, even though he had all that going for him, and actually maybe because he had all that going for him, he was incredibly independent and self-sufficient. It didn't even cross his mind whenever he was looking for these donkeys and they had traveled all through this region looking for these donkeys and he couldn't find them. It never crossed his mind, this man of Israel. It never crossed his mind, let's ask the Lord for help. And a lot of us are like that, right? Like, like <laughs> it's embarrassing to me sometimes when I'm doing my own thing and somebody around me finally says, hey, let's, let's pray about this. And I'm like, that should have been the most obvious thing. That should have been the first thing that I did, but I actually did 18 things before I ever got to that. Saul was independent and self-sufficient and didn't cross his mind to even seek spiritual guidance. And then when, the, when his servant, his servant who would be uneducated was with him, his servant suggested, hey, there's this man, this prophet that lives nearby. What if we asked him? Saul gives him pushback and he says, I don't have anything to give him. 
Now let's not even do that. Let's just go home to dad. And his servant even has to press him. Well, maybe we should go. I got this little bit of money here. He even resisted the idea he was independent and self-sufficient whenever the servant raised the idea. And then we see that he was also, not only was he independent and self-sufficient, but he was spiritually dense. And we know this because Samuel was probably the most famous person in the nation of Israel at the time. Previously in the book, it's told us like the, the whole nation of Israel followed Samuel. He was the judge of the nation of Israel, and he was the spiritual leader for the nation of Israel, and had been for years and years and years. And yet here is Samuel, a good, upstanding son of a wealthy and upstanding man, and he lives nearby. He's not far from home here, by the way. He's probably within 20 miles of his home. There's the most famous man in Israel who is the leader and the spiritual leader of the people of Israel lives nearby. And when the servant mentions him, Saul doesn't even know who he's talking about. I don't know what he's been doing. He's been playing football and watching soccer or video games. I don't know what he was doing, party. I have no idea what was going on in his life, that he was a son of wealth and privilege, that he was probably focused with his own thing and he was had been and was and had become spiritually dense. He didn't even know who Samuel was or his significance. And then we see that he, not only is he independent and self-sufficient, he's spiritually dense, but yet we see that he doesn't understand the whole nature of God whenever he, his response to the servant, when the servant says, let's go to this man, he can t- maybe he can tell us where the donkeys are. His response is, I don't have the money to pay for this man to prophesy for us. And he has this concept that you have to pay in order to earn spiritual favor with God and God's people. When actually that would be a custom would be to to give gifts and offerings to prophets, but you were never paying them for their services. Anytime you, in history, when we see people coming to God, it is always, we never earn any favor with him. It is only his graciousness to us that we can stand before him. He was independent and self-sufficient. He was spiritually dense and he was attempting to earn spiritual favor before the prophet and before God. And what we see in this is that even though Saul was good looking and strong and tall and impressive and seemed to be the ideal candidate to be the first king of Israel, that actually his strength and his wealth, we see are working against him. Those two things, his strength, his handsomeness, his wealth, probably came in really handy in life, right? Like those things are very handy in life. If you want to do things and get things done and get out of trouble and whatever the case may be, like those things come in really handy, but they were working against him in the most important thing, and that is his personal relationship with his maker with his God. And we see what God does in Saul in order to make this guy who would seem to be the ideal candidate, rich, strong, young, impressive, incredibly handsome, in order to make him fit to be the man that God has called him to be, that God has to work a humbling into Saul. So Saul comes and he does come with his servant. He meets, uh, ends up meeting Samuel in the city, in the town, 
And Samuel's on his way up to a feast, and he says, why don't you come with me? And they, as they are getting ready to go up to the feast, Saul, uh, Samuel says to him, as for your donkeys, it's verse 20, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? He's, he's telling him there's good things ahead for you. And we see we don't have too much time to go into how this happens, but we see Saul's response is already starting to change to the Lord. Saul answered in verse, verse 21, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And I think it's pretty clear that what we see in this exchange between uh, Samuel and Saul, verse 15 through 21, is you see that Saul, this young, good-looking, rich, wealthy, impressive young man, comes into contact with a power and a impressiveness that is way beyond him, and it begins to humble him. When he comes to this rich, young, impressive man, whenever he comes to the prophet and the prophet is able to tell him where his donkeys are and to tell him what is going on even in his own heart, that humble Saul and he answers, why have you spoken to me in this way? When Saul comes in contact with the true power of God, he is humbled, and that is always the first step for all of us. Before our circumstances, our mess that we are in can be redeemed, we have to first clearly see who we really are. And it happens when God begins to show us that no matter how cool and good-looking and wealthy and whatever you have going for you, however you think that you are, and however we puff ourselves up into thinking that we are something, we come in contact with the almighty creator God, it always humbles us. We begin to see, it's sort of like they call it an epiphany, a sudden awakening to the true nature of things. We begin to see God is holy and mighty and awesome, and I am not. And Saul begins to see that in this wealthy, young, impressive man, all of a sudden begins, for the, maybe for the first time in his life, to truly be humbled. We have to see ourselves clearly for who we really are. When we see this turn in the story, the people had begged for a king like every other nation. And God had chosen this physically impressive yet very imperfect man named Saul for that purpose. And now he, had to, he has to take this imperfect man who's suddenly starting to see himself for who he really is. So he's wealthy and privileged and strong. He begins to see that I've been spiritually dense. He begins to see that I've been independent and self-sufficient, that I've been prideful. He begins to humble himself. Now God's gonna have to transform this man, Saul, to be the man who God has called him to be in order to do what God has called him to do because that's what he told Samuel. The people had, had a sinful request for a leader like every, all the other nations around them. God doesn't say, hey, I'm just going to give you this leader and leave you to it. He says, I'm, I've picked Saul to be the leader, and he is going to redeem his people from the Philistines. I'm going to use Saul, this imperfect man, and I'm going to use this sinful request and demand of the people for my glory to redeem 
Israel from their oppressors. And this is what we see that happens. In verse 27, as was read for us, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, this is after uh, Samuel has uh, invited Saul to stay with him overnight. Then Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. When he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So this just between Samuel and Saul. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Now this is significant because this is the first time that we see somebody other than a priest be anointed. So when God had started the priesthood, without going too far into that, when God had started the priesthood under Moses, he began to ordain the priest by pouring oil over the priest, said it was a sign that they were set apart to God and God's spirit was upon them to be the priest of his people. And now Samuel, the prophet, is pouring oil uh, anointing Saul's head and naming him priest. And what this shows us a couple of things is that, uh, that Israel's leader wasn't gonna be the sovereign leader of their people. He, answerable to no one. God was saying, you are under me as my king, under me over my people. Even some of the wording, the way that the wording of king or prince or leader in these passages denotes something different than a sovereign king over the people. And what this marked as he poured the oil, Samuel poured the oil over Saul's head, is what it marked was it marked a divine claim of God over Saul. He was saying, you are mine. I divinely claim you as my own. And what it showed to Saul, and it was to show the other people as they would find out that he was anointed king by Samuel, it was it would show that a different ownership of Saul's life than had been before. This young, impressive, strong, self-willed, self-sufficient, prideful young man, God poured out the anointing oil upon him and said, you are mine. Your mind, your body, your thoughts all belong to me. I am telling you, you are mine. I have set you apart for myself. It was showing that God had a different, there was a different ownership was now over Saul's life and it showed for the people around a, an external, what's called a sanctification. That means that he was being set apart to God. First of all, he's being set apart as the oil poured over him was a sign that he was being set apart for, a, for his own personal purpose. Whatever Saul thought he was gonna do with his life before, whatever his personal goals were before, God was saying, now those are subject to me and my will. Your personal purpose has now changed. And it is also a sign for the people outside, this man has been set apart to me. And that, to a greater extent, is what happens when you and I become a Christian. This is a foreshadowing in a, in a, in a very in a very shadowy, minor scale to what was gonna come at the new birth in the New Testament after Jesus Christ was 
died for our sins and, res- and resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father, then sent the Holy Spirit to the people is the sign of what this new birth that would occur in people's lives. And the, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and it shows, for, shows us, what happens to us at salvation is we are, God declares over us, there's a different ownership over you and your life. Your mind, your will, your affections, your plans for the future, your idea of the past, all of that is now in subjection under me. And I've sanctified you, I've set you apart for my purpose. I've called you to do whatever you thought you were gonna do with your life, I've called you to a different purpose and I want everybody around you to notice what baptism shows that we're gonna be celebrating in two weeks. It's a public declaration, a public physical representation that God, just as Saul poured the oil over, Samuel poured the oil over Saul's head, we take the, they take the person, we dip them in the water, we're saying, this person has been sanctified and set apart to the Lord. Let the whole world know, let every person, let your friends and family know, let strangers know, let angels and demons know, this person belongs to the Lord and is set apart for the Lord and his purposes. And as he anointed Saul with oil, then he, said, then he tells him down in verse, uh, as he tells him these different signs are gonna happen in his life, in that day, there are gonna be signs that this is actually the real thing. In verse uh, five, it says, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. And then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. And then in verse nine, when he turned, that's Saul, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. The spirit of the Lord, verse 10, rushed upon him and he prophesied among the prophets. When all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish. What was demonstrated in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Saul is that an internal transformation needed to happen and was happening. That's what it shows is when it says in verse six, and when you will be turned into, at the end of verse six, you'll be turned into another man. And then in verse nine, when Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another Heart. It means that there was an internal transformation of his mind and his will or his heart. An internal transformation of how he thought about himself and about the Lord and an internal change of his heart and his will. That's a miracle that can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds to change us from thinking before with ourselves at the center of our lives and then thinking with Christ at the center of our lives. Saul had to change in order to be fit to lead God's people. And God, this is the miraculous thing, God himself would provide that change. Have you ever tried to change yourself? Have you ever tried to change yourself about something like even small? 
I've used the example, it's been a while. You guys know, I, uh, hopefully you know, I hate pot roast. I believe it's the meal that will be served in hell. Hate it. The smell, the taste, the texture, all of it. And it's crazy. I like beef. I like potatoes. I like carrots. I like onions. Something happens when you put it all together and cook it slowly. Something terrible. There's terrible little leprechauns in there doing terrible things to that whole mixture. I hate it. It's, it makes my skin crawl. And, and there's been times where I thought, like, maybe... What if I could not hate pot roast anymore? Maybe I should like it now. I also feel a, a similar way, just slightly less passionate about lasagna. And you know what people always serve when you go to their house? Lasagna or spaghetti, which I also am not a fan of. I'm kind of a picky eater. I'm sorry, Megan. So, so I've thought like, man, I wish I could like spaghetti and I cannot for the life of me make myself like spaghetti. I'm a Clemson fan by birth, I like to say. It's been a lot, for, for, for very early on. And there was a while there where I thought, man, because people would say, hey, I, I pull for, uh, you know, Clemson or South Carolina, and then I, I pull for the other team all the rest of the time until they play each other, because they're from South Carolina, so I'll pull for them. And I thought, man, I want to do, that sounds like really nice thing. Like, I like to do the same thing. And, and so I said, I'm going to pull for South Carolina. I'm going to pull for those Gamecocks, and, and I'd watch the game that they were playing, and I would find myself, even though I'm saying, like, go Gamecocks, and secretly in my heart, I'm hoping, like, they'll break the, the quarterback's leg or, <laughs> or at least lose the game every single time. And those are little things. You, can't, it's, you cannot change your will. Your will is what your will is. You need a miraculous move of God's spirit upon you in order to change your heart and your mind and your will so that you think and feel and then result in acting differently about God and about his commands and claims upon your life. And until that happens, we will live in rebellion. Jesus told Nicodemus, who was a great keeper of the law, a great a great man, he came to him, he said, what must I do? Jesus said, you have to be born again. You have to be born again, that is the only hope. And if you have been born again, then that means that you have heard God's call upon you. His call, he says, he calls you to himself. He calls you to live the life that he's called you to live. So he's called you to himself. There's two calls. There's a call to himself to be his child and to bow your knee to him as your Lord and as your king. And also this call then, and it always accompanies every call to every one of his servants, every one of his children, every one of his people. I call you to myself and then I call you to do my work in your life. And if you've been born again, it means that you've heard God's call upon you and that he has transformed you. So all of a sudden that goes from being something that is repulsive to you to something that is what you really want to do with your life. It means that he has marked his divine claim upon you as he did upon Saul. And it means he has poured or rushed his Holy Spirit upon you to change your mind and your will. I ask you this morning, have you experienced that? Not how big is your Bible, how many times have you been to church, but have you experienced that kind of change? If you haven't, you might have considered yourself a Christian, but you, are, you have not been born again from above. This morning can be that morning. 
And then what happens that we see with Saul and we see in our lives is that, well, first of all, we, have to, we see clearly who we are, and then we have to be transformed by God's spirit into who we aren't. But then the call comes, then we have to now become who we are. Saul has been anointed by God as the king, the future king of Israel. God has poured out his spirit and rushed his spirit upon him. So it says that he became a different man. He gave him, in verse 9, another heart. But we see what happens next is that though the spirit had rushed upon him, he'd been given a new heart. Yet when Samuel calls the people in verse 17, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And this is where he's going to choose and anoint who will be the next king of Israel. And he brings the people by lot before him and the, the, the lot falls upon the tribe of Benjamin. And then they bring the tribe of Benjamin before him and the lot falls upon uh, the, the uh, clan of the, uh, the matrix. Matrites, and then they bring the matrites before him, and they the, the lot falls upon Saul, and he says, "Where is Saul?" And nobody can find him. He's he's turns out he's hiding, and he's hiding so well that that Samuel has to ask the Lord, "Where is Saul?" And God tells, we believe Samuel, but he, God God tells them he's he is hidden. Behold, verse twenty two. Behold, he has hidden himself. Among the baggage, even though Saul had been anointed, he'd been set apart, God's spirit had rushed upon him, he had to now, he was hiding among the baggage. Why? Because he's afraid, because he doesn't really want this job, because he's concerned. We don't really, it doesn't really tell us why, what was going on through Saul's head, but all we know is that he was hiding himself among the baggage. He was not now seeming to respond to God's call and claim upon him. Saul now had to become what he already was. Saul had to walk out the change that had already occurred. And that is what the Christian life is all about. God has called you to himself. He's poured his spirit out upon you. He's made you a son or daughter of the king. And now you have to walk out the change that has already occurred. You have to become who you are. That's what Paul means in Galatians 5, 25, when he says, if we live by the Spirit, so if you're born again, you now live by the Spirit. If you live by the, with the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You're not called without being transformed and you're not transformed without being called, but then you, once you are born again, you have to walk out that. And the question comes to all of us, like it came to Saul, where are you hiding? If you all have been born again, are you walking out who you are? Are you actively becoming who God has made you to be by his spirit. Where are you hiding? Some of us are hiding among our, our own personal baggage. We're so overcome with the things that we have done or the things that we keep doing, besetting sins, bad relationships. Our life seems to be our Christian life seems to be just starts and stops, fits and stops, up and down. And some of us would get so overwhelmed with that, but that we just kind of tend to mail it in. And that's when some of you guys, we don't see you for 
Sunday after Sunday, you fall out of community group. Uh, the texting that used to be like you and your buddies, you and your friends, uh, how you doing, I'm praying for you this morning, or people would check with you, you would respond back, thanks for checking with me. All of a sudden, it's crickets. You're so overcome by your own personal baggage, things that you've done in the past, things that you're doing now and you can't seem to get beyond. But yet here's the news that just for, as Saul, he had been anointed, God's spirit had been poured out upon him as he's hiding in that baggage. God has supplied for you, if you are a believer, he has supplied for you everything, everything that you need in order to leave that baggage behind. Some of us are hiding among the baggage that, that someone else has saddled us with. It's things that, things that have been done to us. Maybe your, your childhood was really terrible. Maybe things the unspeakable have been done to you. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe it's things that people have said. Maybe you just had a really bum rap in life, and it seems like everything has gone wrong for you. You're the opposite end of Saul, who was tall and good-looking and a man of wealth. You're the opposite end of that. And you're so overcome by that that you hide whenever you hear God's call upon your life. Here's the news for you and for me this morning. God has supplied everything, everything that you need in order to leave that baggage behind. You have been called You've been called a son or a daughter of God. First John 3, 1, that the Father, has, we, the, the love the Father has lavished upon us that we have been called a child of God. If you are a believer in Christ, you've been called a loved son or daughter of God. You've been called an heir of the Father, a co-heir with Jesus. Romans 8, 17, if we are children, then heirs. And if we are heirs, then we are fellow heirs with Christ. There is no claim that Christ can make upon the Father that you and I cannot make through him. Though we are broken, though we have mailed it in, though things terrible have been done to us, though we are incredibly cracked, Yet we can walk around with heads held high because you, if you are a believer, you are a co-heir with Christ and you didn't become an heir because you placed yourself in his family. He placed you and called you into his family and he breathed his spirit upon you and made you his child. You've been called, you've been called by the king of kings and you've been called by the Lord of lords for a unique Purpose, 2 Timothy 1.9, you've been saved and called to a holy calling. Galatians 1.15, just as Saul said, Paul said that he had been set apart before birth and called by God, you have been set apart before birth and called by God. You have been transformed. You've had your record of wrongs covered. You've been made right or in good standing with the holy God. You've been given a new heart. Hebrews 10, 14 through 16, you've been given a new heart. You've been made, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You've been called. Haven't you? Have you? Have you been called? Have you been transformed? If so, 
let's walk in it. Doesn't mean it won't be messy. Doesn't mean we won't fail and fall down all the time. But let's walk to what we were called into. Let's walk out the transformation that he has begun in our souls. And if you haven't, make that today. But whatever you do, don't hide among the baggage. You'll never learn how to become who you are if you hide there. It's only by leaving there and obeying God's call upon your life, even when you don't feel that you are worthy, even when you don't feel that you're capable, even when you continually mess it up like Saul is going to continually mess it up, leave the baggage behind and follow. Have you been called? Are you walking in that calling? Have you been transformed? Are you walking in that transformation? God's calling comes with God's transformation. And God's transformation always comes with God's calling. And that's a challenge to us, but also should be really, really encouraging to us this morning. Because the way that we walk that out is the same way that it happens by God's gracious work in our lives and his gift of faith. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.